After Lazarus is raised from the dead, Jesus goes into Lazarus' house and Mary poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and then she wiped it with her hair. Now this needs a little bit of cultural understanding because, well, I don't know, if I had you over for dinner and I did this too, you might be a little freaked out. See, back then baths were not taken every day like we do or, you know, most of us do today. Instead, they relied on perfumes and oils to freshen up. As a result, certain essential oils became extremely valuable and desired to use. The oil that this woman uses here in John chapter 12, which by the way, this story is also found in Matthew and Mark, was contained in an alabaster jar. And according to the Greek, it was spikenard, which means pure or unadulterated. Now some think that this word nard here refers to a type of flower found in India, but it could have also referred to just some uh, carefully chosen roses and flowers of the Middle East that were reduced down to essential oils. Now John points out that she had so much of it that it cost 300 denarii, which is about a year's salary. Wow. This also indicates that, well, her family had some wealth because after all, you wouldn't have that kind of expensive oil laying around. It also explains the disciples' reaction of shock, saying it's wasteful. Now Jesus, on the other hand, he welcomes the gesture and he calls it lovely. After all, she was giving him the oils that he needed for a proper burial, one that executioners certainly did not give him. And who knows, maybe she anointed him as a face statement, saying that he's the Messiah because Messiah literally means the anointed one. Whatever her motivations, she certainly sacrificed a year's salary for Jesus. So there you go. A little bit about anointing perfume, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Father, we come here tonight hoping to hear something that makes sense for our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give hope to those that are struggling with tomorrow. And I, I pray that you would give strength to those that are dealing with difficult situations. And I, I pray that you give forgiveness to those that are struggling with, with beating themselves up from the past and regret over past decisions and past things. I pray that you give comfort to those that just need the support of knowing that you've got them as they're going through life. I need you to give perspective to those that forget that you're working all things for our good. I need you to give the gifts that we need tonight so that we can walk out of here strengthened and renewed by your love and by your grace and by your care for us. And so that's my prayer tonight and pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So during communion, I said I want you to experience communion in tangible ways. And I want to share that, what I mean by that just a little bit because it should be more than just coming up to the altar and getting the cracker and, and, and some wine, right? It should be more than that. When we talk about sacraments in the church, we're talking about Jesus saying, I love you and I forgive you, right? That's what he says in all of them. When you read God's word, what does he say over and over? I love you and I forgive you. You're baptized. God's claiming you as his kid, his child. I love you and I forgive you. And that's the same thing that happens at the communion rail again, I love you and I forgive you. You go, why does he keep saying the same thing over and over and over? I was in seminary and one of the grad students challenged me in this. He goes, what's the difference in what you get when you go to any one of the sacraments? I mean, why do we have three? Why don't you just have the one and we just keep doing the one over and over and over and over? And so I studied that for a little bit and I couldn't quite figure it out until I came across this illustration and I think it sums up for it in a wonderful way. And again, for some of you who've already heard this, but think of a marriage. In marriage, you share that love in different ways, don't you? You share it verbally. I love you, sweetie. Hopefully you just said that on, well, it was a Friday or Thursday or whenever. I should know that better. Anyway, the 14th. 
He says, hey, I love you, right? And, and then you showed it tangibly. Maybe you bought flowers. Maybe you just treated her extra special nice. Or, or, or you, maybe you took out the trash that day. You know, I don't know. But you did stuff to show her that it wasn't just words, that there was something tangible, right? And then you were hoping she held your hand at the end of the night, right? Because you're hoping there's some kind of affection going on, that you're going to experience it physically. All three of those are super important. And I want to explain why. What if your spouse never said the words, I love you? Take you back to Valentine's Day. I love you, honey. Thanks. Thanks. And she said that for a year. Thanks to your I love you. I mean, you're pouring your heart out here. I love you. I love you. I love you. And she keeps saying thank you. That's really nice. But she never says the words back. And even if you're receiving the other two, she's showing it tangibly. She's helping out the kids, all sorts of amazing things that she's doing to support the family. She's sharing it with you physically just so you know. But the reality is she's just not saying the words. What happens to you? start to doubt. Why won't she say the words? Have we devolved into some weird friendship? I mean, why doesn't she say the words? I don't understand. Or what if he's just not interested physically? He's saying the things, he's, he's doing the things, but he's just not interested in you in that way anymore. Over time, maybe at first you're appreciative, but over time you're thinking, is there somebody else? I mean, why why doesn't he look at me that way anymore? Why is he, he interested in me that way anymore? Why is there nothing, not even a pat on the back, not even, you know, a holding hands, there's just nothing. What's going on? And eventually you would start to what? Doubt that love. Or what if he just never showed it? I mean, all he wanted was one thing and all he said was I love you, but he never actually helped you in your life, right? He didn't support you with the kids. He didn't support you with the home. He didn't help partake or, or participate in the future of your relationship. He just kind of was there. Eventually, you start to think it's just words, and again, you start to doubt. God says, I don't ever want you to doubt. And so I keep telling you in different ways, I love you and I forgive you. I say it verbally so that you don't ever doubt. I share it physically, right? I give you a hug when you come to the altar. I love that, uh, that visualization of a hug because he promises to be here present. He promises to give you forgiveness of your sins. He promises to give you strength for your life. He shares again, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it's like getting a big hug. And sometimes doesn't a hug just matter? It does. It just matters a big, uh, in, in every possible way. Sometimes we just need to feel God's hug to remind us that he's got us. I mean, we've heard it, right? Pastor kept preaching about it or whatever. Or, but sometimes we just need to know these are in, in tangible ways. And when you come to the altar, I want you to receive that hug in the future, right? I want you to receive him as present, wrapping you up in his arms, reminding you that he's got you, that he loves you, that you're his, and that you go out refreshed and you go out renewed and you go out forgiven, because that's what he wants to do for you every single time you come into this place. So we're finding ourselves in John chapter 12 today, and we're, we're continue, going to continue on with this narrative. And Mike talked about it a little bit, but I'm going to start in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They think this is the Friday before Good Friday. That's kind of where we are, the narrative of the Passion. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner there for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance and perfume. Now, what had just happened in the life of Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Anybody remember a couple months earlier, actually, it's not too far ago, 
Jesus just raised her brother from the dead. Proclaimed again, already believed that he was the Messiah. Now they just had their minds blown yet again with the power of God and the love of God and the fact that this was God's son, their Messiah, their Lord, their Savior, sitting at their house once again. She's overwhelmed with love. She's overwhelmed with just the fact that her brother's sitting there, that God loves her that much. And she pours out in worship the most expensive thing, well, I think it was one of the most expensive things she had in her house, right? to anoint him as the son of God, to share her thanksgiving for what he had done, to show her him that he, she, show him that she loved her more than anything. It was an act of worship. It was an act of thanksgiving and absolutely a way of anointing the Lord without even knowing right before his, his death coming up. But the reality is it was something that she did from the bottoms of her heart out of appreciation. Most people sitting there, knowing that she had just raised Lazarus, just the last time he was there, got the sentiment, understood why she was doing what she was doing. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he was put into it. But Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you need not always have me. Now, on the surface of this, Jesus makes a point, doesn't he? I mean, it's a legitimate point. Couldn't this have gone to help more people than just Jesus, right? I mean, sure, he smells pretty now, but couldn't this have gone to help a whole bunch of people and feed a whole bunch of people? It's actually a legitimate counterpoint, right? But what was Judas forgetting? He was forgetting this thing called the priority of Jesus. Right? We say that God wants to be number one in our lives. We, we get that. He needs to be the most important thing in our lives. We, we say that over and over and over. It's hard for us to actually apply it, I think, at times. But we understand that's what it means to be Lord. That's what it means to be Lord of our lives. Right? Uh, Lord is kind of like a king, king of our life, ruler of our life, president of our life, all those different things. That he wants priority. And there is nothing more important in our lives than sharing our love with God, sharing our love of Jesus Christ. Nothing, not even the poor. I'll give you an example of that. It's a kind of a different example, but I was having a, a dinner, there was a kind of a dinner party, and afterwards we were just talking, and these were with, with friends. They, they, did, they were Christians, but they didn't go to church all the time, but they were in our neighborhood, and anyway, we got to talking. And the gal finds out that we tithe, you know, to the church, and she starts computing that in her head, and she goes, she goes, that's not okay. And I said, what do you mean it's not okay? She goes, I can't believe that you would give that kind of dollars to the church. That's, that's almost, it's, it's almost criminal. And she goes, well, I go, what are you talking about? She goes, don't you love your family? I said, absolutely, I love my family. Then why would you give so much of this money away instead of doing more with your family? Don't you care about what's going on with your family? I said, well, we're doing okay. And, and you know, you give toward what you find important, right? You give toward, you know, and Jesus is super important to us. He's more important than, than I guess, some of the other things we could do with money, you know? And we had this conversation, <laughs> started off light, but heated up pretty quick, you know, from her perspective. And I said, ultimately, it's our way of saying that we can love God most that we want him to be number one in the area of money. 
I say, you give to what's important to you. If it's not that important to you, you throw a couple bucks in the bin. But, but we think it's super important. And she said, more important than family? And I said, yeah, more important than family. And then she looked at Beth, and Beth nodded her head. She goes, yeah, more important than family. And it blew her mind that anybody would love God that much. But is that wrong to put God as the first thing in your life? Is it wrong to give priority to God? No. It's what it means to worship him. When you put him as the number one thing in your life, you're saying, I worship God. I love him most. He is the most important thing in my life. This priority of worship is what leads people to go into the ministry. It's not for the bucks, right? You know, it's not for the glamorous lifestyle. It, it's to say, we want to share Jesus with people. I have the coolest job in the world. I get to stand up and talk about Jesus every single week, and, and you guys show up and listen to me. That's fantastic. It really is. I love my job. And my hope is that through this, you guys get some inspiration, or you guys get some encouragement, or you guys are connected with Jesus in a powerful way that reminds you that he loves you, that he's got you, that you're his, right? And so, this priority of Jesus is super important as you look through what he calls us to do as disciples. It's the thing that Judas missed, and he was missing it for a couple reasons. He was hoping to have a little bit more money to play with, right? He was just about to betray him in short order to get, what, more money to play with. But the reality is he missed out of that most important thing, the priority of Jesus. Now, does Jesus say it's important to to feed the poor? Absolutely. He says you should do it. I mean, they're always going to have the poor, so it's always probably an important thing for you guys to think about somebody outside of yourself and to care for them. What did he tell the rich young ruler when it, he came to him and says, am I lacking anything? He says, well, sell all you got and give it to the poor and then come follow me. What? Because money was his God, and he needed to remove that God to put Jesus first so that there'd be no hindrance between him and God. And who did he tell them to give it to? The poor, those that could benefit from, from, from it the most. And so giving to the poor is absolutely important. It's just not as important as God. Your family and loving your family and supplying for your family is super important. It's just not as important as God. Can you hear me say that? Now, I'll just bring it down a little bit. If you had a choice to support all the people in your neighborhood or the poor in your community or feed your family, which one would you do? You'd feed your family, right? Why? Because they have priority over all those other people. So why is it weird when I say that God's got to have priority over the poor? It's, it's the priority of Jesus. It's what it means to worship him. If he's number one, that means he's number one in every area of our life. And it's not just the money, right? It's, it's our time. We should be devoting time to him. And you guys are here tonight giving up part of your week to be in his house of worship, to hear his word, to connect with his forgiveness, to, to be in his house. That's an important thing, a powerful thing. My hope is that during the week you guys are reading it or doing something where you're, you're letting him pour into you more and more and more because you see it because you recognize I want him to be a huge part of my life, not just a little part of my life. Priority of Jesus. The other thing it says is that the poor you always have with you, and that's not a good thing. I mean, the reality is we have plenty of resources in this world to feed everybody. We just don't. And we live in a country that's pretty cool. I know you hear all the rhetoric on TV, but the poor in this country are the envy of the world's poor, right? We get health care if you're poor in our community today. You get, you get groceries if you're poor in our community today. You get, you get subsidized housing if you're poor in our community today. I've been to Honduras, and we did some optical and dental trips in my last church and people would be sleeping in cardboard boxes on the side of the road, right? 
When we went, this was back in, in uh, early 2000s, we went to Comiago, which was the third biggest city in, in Honduras, and the headlines of the paper read, a, th- a third of the city electrified. In other words, they just got electricity. Electricity. And all of a sudden, in half the houses as you drive by didn't even have roofs, but they finally got electricity, which seems kind of dangerous if it rains. Anyway, but the reality is, it's a whole different world out there than what we experience in our country. And I love that we supply and care for the people in our country. I do, right? I, I mean, you can, politics aside, I just think that's a cool thing that we've decided to do with our money, to make sure that nobody's in such a situation as much as we can control, right? Where they're so down and out that their lives are in, in pure jeopardy. Now, that doesn't mean there's not people out there struggling or suffering, but I, I just think that's a cool thing. But the poor are always with us. And the church used to be the one that supplied these things for the community more than anybody else. It's not a, always very true today. But the reality is, God's call for us always is to take care of those that are less fortunate, to again, get outside of ourselves and to make it about other people. All right, so he goes on with this. Uh, so... So he says, leave her alone so that they may keep it for the day of my burial. What does he do in that? He's prophesying of what? He's going to die pretty soon, okay? For the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Remember, they had just decided what? That they were going to do what to Jesus? Kill him, right? They just made a huge prophecy, Caiaphas did. It's better for one man to die than for the whole country, and so they're going to kill Jesus. They made plans. They're just waiting for him to come to Jerusalem, right? They didn't have advanced scouts to track him down. They had to, were waiting for him to come to Jerusalem where they could send their guys and go get him. That was their whole plan. So they hear he's in Bethany, which is just a couple miles out of Jerusalem, and so they send their team, right? They send the soldiers. They send the Pharisees. And they came there not only because of him, but because of Lazarus. They had, he had just raised him from the dead within two miles of, of Jerusalem. And this was a notable family, a renowned family. And so the word got out. People were coming to faith left and right because he raised a guy that was three days dead, four days dead. It was on the fourth day, right, that he raised him. That shouldn't happen. Unless you're God, you just don't do that. So people were putting their faith in him. And so what did they decide to do? Um, so the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. But that's the way hatred works, isn't it? Or, you know, I, I hate the president, so I've got to hate anybody who follows the president. You, you hear about the story of a 15-year-old kid just excited about politics, and he was wearing the wrong kind of hat, and he got beat up by some guy because of he was in the opposite party. Is that Okay. No, he had nothing against the kid other than his affiliation with the president, right? Should that be the case? No. But you hate one, so you got to hate everybody. And that's kind of what we do in our culture today. If you like the green carpet, you're all cool, but not those red carpet people, right? And, and I, know, I know Judy's heading the red carpet group, so we definitely don't like Judy, but, but anybody who hangs out with Judy, man, we got to question their moral integrity now because... Red carpet, really? Blood? I can't understand that. So the reality is we just do that. We vilify those that we disagree with. And that, when we vilify them and we're successful in vilifying them, it excuses for us our hatred. And it excuses our behavior. And then pretty soon we think we can say or do anything because we're self-justified, because we vilified. 
So that's a little bit of what's happening here. You add to that that people are coming to faith in Jesus as a result of this, and, and they're freaking out. They don't know what to do. Everything they've tried up to this point, the threats that they've made, kicking people out of the synagogue, you know, the, the, the kind of the network of spies that they had, the, the things that they've said to Jesus personally, his disciples to threaten them, to, to keep them quiet, to, to, to make Jesus stop, nothing's working at this point. People are coming to faith in droves, and even though it's known that they're looking for Jesus to kill him, he's two miles away from Jerusalem with the intention of coming to Jerusalem. It doesn't even make sense. Why isn't he running away? Why isn't he going the other direction? Next day, Palm Sunday, a large crowd that had come from the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What's kind of cool about that is it comes from one of the halals that they would say during the Passover, um, Psalm 113 through 118. This was actually a line that they would say as they were sacrificing the sheep. Kind of interesting that they would sing it about the, the Lamb of God as he's entering Jerusalem to be crucified, sacrificed for our sin, isn't it? But they were proclaiming the same thing that all of them would know, that all of them would sing during the Passover celebration, and they're singing it about Jesus because they want him to be king. This is the guy. He does stuff that nobody else can do. He teaches in ways that are true and just leap off the page and make sense for our lives. We've seen him change people. This has got to be the Messiah. This has got to be the king. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, for it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, the king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I mean, I know Jesus knew, but the disciples had probably no idea that that came from Zechariah 9.9, right? It was a prophecy about the Messiah coming in. Is what the kings rode on back in the day. He was, not, he was announcing his coming. I come as king. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb had raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done these things, this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. There was a reason so many people were there. Not only was he in close proximity, but the word about Lazarus got out. And tons of people had heard it. Tons of people had seen Lazarus since. They wanted to meet the man who raised him from the dead. The one they had heard so much about. The one that was changing things in Jerusalem and all over Israel. They wanted to see him come because they believed that just maybe he was the Messiah. And so they littered the streets and they sang the songs. Here he comes. And the Pharisees were frustrated We've tried everything, but now the whole world's gone after him. He had never been more popular, not in his three years of ministry. He had never been on a higher stage. This was it. They were ready to crown him king. Nothing could stop him, right? I have a question. Did the chief priest carry out the plan to kill Lazarus? I don't know. There's no record of that, but um, since they killed Jesus just a few days later, they probably let Lazarus pass at that point, I'm thinking. But, but it's an interesting question, one I just don't have the answer to. Now, 
among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Kind of a random thing to say to these guys, right? But what I want to point out first is that they were seeking Jesus. They had heard what he had done. They had seen the evidence for themselves. They wanted to know him personally. And isn't that why we come every week? Isn't that why we pour into Scripture? Isn't that why we, we, we listen to sermons, especially like this, where we're just going through Scripture? Because we want to know Him better, because we want to understand what He's promised, because we want Him more and more involved in our lives. It can't just be an intellectual pursuit, right? We're saved not by knowledge, but by trusting what it is that we've learned about Him. And these guys, even though they weren't Jews, Maybe they become Jews over time, but they wanted to meet Jesus. They wanted to meet the ones that had changed their friends and had changed just the face of what was going on in Israel. And again, in a kind of cryptic way, he says, the glorified part might have thought, hey, maybe he is becoming king. But then he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Again, seeming to indicate something very contrary to the fact that he was going to become king in just a few days. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So then he goes, after giving this kind of cryptic prophecy of his passing, his death, right? And then ultimately his resurrection as it builds back and and gathers people in. He gives us another kind of conversation on the priority of Jesus, and is putting Jesus first just coming to church? Is it just tithing? Is it just praying? I mean, all those things are good. It's what get, it draws us closer, closer to Jesus. It's all ways that we put our trust in him, right, in different areas of our life. But he talks about something quite different here, doesn't it? Whoever loves this life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's he talking about hate? He's not really talking so much about hating as he's talking about priority, isn't he? Do you love me more than you do your wife? Do you love me more than you do your kids, your family? Do you love me more than you do your golf clubs or, or your car or your house? How about if you had to choose between Jesus and your house or your retirement account? Do you love me more than money, he would ask. Am I truly what's most important to you in this world? Remember Abraham, again, the test that he put him through? He had just got his long-awaited son, the son of promise, Isaac. I mean, he was the love of his life. Every promise that God made coming through this kid. Plus, he was his only kid from, from Sarah, right? And God asked him, okay, I need you to go sacrifice your son. Next morning, he gets up to do it because he loves the Lord. God's first in his life. He's got his son. He's got the wood. He's got the knife. He's got all the servants carrying the wood. It sets off, goes to Mount Moriah. Gets to Mount Moriah. God hasn't said anything different yet. He's starting to stress out a little bit, right? But he loves God most. So he ties up his son. Can you you get that? God, he loves him the most. And somehow, someway, he is the son of prophecy. 
God told me to kill him. I, he is the son. Of, somehow they both have to be true, right? So he ties up his son. God still hasn't intervened. He gets the knife and puts it over his son. You know how much you have to love God more to do that? He starts to go down and God says, stay your hand. At which point I'm sure he just went, woo, <laughs> you know. But it was evidence that he loved God. And what did God say? Now I know you love me most. Now I know. Praise be to God he doesn't do those tests on us. Well, he does actually in different ways over time, but not anything that extreme. God says, do you love me most? The priority of Christ that's what, he means to you. That's what he means when he says, if anyone serves me, you must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I used to, well, I, I still do, I guess, in Bible studies, I'll say, I, mean, I can't wait to go to heaven. Right? I, I'd go right now if Jesus took me. Heart attack, I guess, or you know, something. But I'd go right now. I, that's my prize. That's my reward. I, I'd love to go there and hang out. It would be so much fun. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. It all sounds good to me. Now, I love my family. I love them more than you can imagine, right? I just, I just love them more. And if you ask my wife and my kids, they'd say, yeah, we're second, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Or the kids would say, yeah, we're third. Because <laughs> if you'd ask me, do I love my wife more? They'd go, yeah. You know, but that's healthy. It's actually healthy. God first, then spouse, then kids. If you keep it in that order, everybody wins, Priority of Christ. If you don't want to go today, what's keeping you here? It's just a question. What do you love more than being with Jesus? What do you love more than receiving your reward? It's just a legit question. Because in there something is something that vies for the number one thing in your life. I know that it's extreme, but he uses extreme language here, right? And that's what he's talking about. I want to be first. I've given you everything, my own son, to die so that you could live. I just want you to love me in return. Priority of Christ, and he says it in ways that just freak us out because we're like, how could you possibly do that? And yet, we have a witness of Abraham, some guy that was able to get to that point. I'm not professing I could do that. I don't know if you could do that, but Abraham did. I'd love to think I could do it, but strapping him down, then I, I, that's, that's saying, God, I will do anything because Abraham knew that somehow he still must be the son of prophets. It, it talks about in Hebrews that even if you have to raise him from the dead, I know that you will come through because you love me and you love this kid and you are true to your promises. Do you trust God that much? And that's the quest, right? To learn to trust him with more and more and more in our life, with more and more and more things and experience more and more peace and strength and hope and forgiveness in life. Now he says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. <laughs> he just, you know, he knows what's coming down. He knows this is his last week. He knows what's ultimately going to happen. Are you guys afraid of death or afraid of how you're going to die? It's the how you're, it's the how to part, right? Am I going to struggle a lot? Is it going to be horrible? Jesus knew the answer to those questions was yes, it's going to be the most horrible thing ever. The 100% man part was troubled, as would be any of us. 
He's walking to his execution knowing that he has to do it because he loves his disciples, because he loves you guys, because he knows it's God's plan to save the world. He gets it, he knows it, it's why he's there, but he's troubled. And so he says, Father, save me from this hour. No, 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 but for this is the purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He says it in the garden too, right? If you could take this cup from my hand, take it now, but I get that this is why I'm here. Can you see the conflict? Can you see the troubled soul that Jesus was wrecked with? He knows he's gonna see the worst of humanity. It had to freak him out, even though he's 100% God too, right? It had to freak him out, and yet knowing that, he kept walking to the cross because he loves you because he loves us, because he knew it was the only way, because he loved his father and knew that he was, that was God's plan from the very beginning. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, no, this voice has come for your sake, not mine, that they might believe that they might understand. Now is the judgment of our world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Get he's prophesying, I'm gonna die pretty soon. But I have to die to draw everybody to me, right? I have to die for the forgiveness of all mankind. And they couldn't possibly have understood all that at this point, they clearly did not. But he keeps sharing with them over and over and over, this is happening, I'm going to my death, I'm not gonna become king, kind of an awareness thing here, right? Something very serious is coming down the pike and I need you guys to be prepared. I need you guys to keep trusting, even again, when you can't see it. That's the amazing thing about God's word, right? It's always true, even when things seem to conflict. I am the savior of the world and he's crucified on the cross. They still are both true, how? He raises three days later. There's now an empty tomb. He now sits at the right hand of God. They're always true, but in those three days, you're freaking out because you can't seem to wrap your mind around how they can both be true at the same time. So he says, now is the judgment of the world. With his resurrection, with his death and resurrection, in his death, he took on the sin of all mankind so that when we put our faith in him, we don't get are just desserts, right? We don't have to pay for the sin. One sin deserves death and hell. We no longer have to pay that. And his resurrection confirmed that for all eternity, showed he was who he says he was, all those different things. But in saving us, can you also understand that he judged and condemned the world around it? Do we get again, and a lot of you guys have been with me through since Genesis, that God hates sin. And my buddy, I love my buddy, but he said, does God really, you think God's really still serious about all the sin stuff? Yes, he's still serious about the sin stuff. He hates sin. He destroyed the world through a flood. Why? What does it say? Because every inclination of man's heart was evil all the time. It was sinful. People had stopped trusting him. Top, there was no priority of God. There was, they just stopped and abandoned him altogether except for Noah. And his family was saved through him. The whole world and only Noah was left trusting in the Lord. And you know he was trusting because he was building an ark in the desert. But he believed in the Lord. And he and his family alone were saved because everybody else had turned away. God hates sin, but he loves us. 
After the flood, he promised never to send a flood upon the world again to devastate it like he did, even though the hearts and minds of mankind are evil all the time. Over history, we've seen people, everybody from Noah's family loved God, knew God, but somehow over time they walked away, so we started over with Abraham again and said, okay, I'm going to start by developing a holy nation, right? I'm going to have a nation of people that will serve me, that will love me, that will be a witness to the world about how amazing I am. And over time, even they walked away from him as well. He didn't know what to do. Well, God always knows what to do, but the reality is he couldn't destroy it. He had promised I'm not going to send a flood again, and it's not time, so I'm going to send my son. But before he sent his son, what did he do? He sent prophets left and right over time, priests all over the place, all the way through that time since the creation of Israel, sharing with people the truth, sharing with people his word, but they didn't listen to any of them. Most of them they killed until finally he sent his son. Remember the parable that Jesus shares? And then they killed even him. In the parable, Jesus asked, what will, what will the owner do to those horrible tenants? He will come and wreak destruction upon them. Because God still hates sin. And what did Peter say after the resurrection? And he came into Jerusalem after Pentecost. He says, you just killed God's son, the savior of the world. You are under his judgment. Turn to him now and be saved. So God, the end times, right? We call it Judgment Day. God comes and he judges all things. And those who don't believe on that day, they don't go to heaven. They go to hell. And all those who do hold on to Jesus during those days, they go to heaven because of the promise. And it doesn't have to wait for Judgment Day. The reality is that all of us are probably going to die in the next hundred years or so, right? But, and so we're all going to meet our Judgment Day when we die. And if we believe in him, we'll go to heaven, just as true as God's word is. And if we don't, we're going to go to hell. Now, you think, well, you know, how many people are really going to hell in our world? Because there's, a, there's kind of a teaching today that the world is generally good. It's made up of good people, solid people, even though we see a bunch of brokenness in the world. Good people. And if you ask somebody, are you going to heaven? They're like, yeah, pretty much, I think so. Unless they're like horrible. And they're like, well, I don't know. You know but, but most people think they're going to heaven. The studies put, uh, say that over and over and over. Over 90% of the people that are, um, when they're interviewed, they, they say that they're going to heaven if they die. Now, just out of, just out of statistics, there's uh, 2.2 billion Christians in the world that say that affiliate with being a Christian in the world. That's about 31% of the world affiliates with being a Christian. And then um, I saw this stat, it was from a few years ago, that about one billion people went to church on Christmas Eve, right? That's pretty good, although that's about half of that 2.2, so now let's say it's one, and we'll say 100,000 were sick, so now we got it down to, you know, 1.1 billion that are Christmas and Easter Christians, right? But we'll count them, that's about 17 point, or 15 and a half percent, right? And then we're gonna look at that, and and Luther says that within every church, people come to church, there's those that believe in him, and there's those that don't, right? You have the the visible versus the invisible church, so we'll just lop off 0.5 percent. So you're left with about 15 percent of the world that professes that they believe in God and shows some evidence of it. Which means that 85 percent of our world doesn't know Jesus. Just, those are just statistics. You could carve into that 15% if you wanted, but that would be judging something that probably isn't ours to judge. But God looks at the whole world, most of which have rebelled against him, most of which have walked away. 
And he says, their judgment's coming. But I've not come yet for the sake of that 15% and for any else I can add to that number. That's what he tells Peter, right? He says, I haven't come yet because I still want to collect some into my household. And so I've stayed the, the, the judgment day from coming, right? I've stayed the end time so that I can gather as many as I can into my house. But there'll come a time when God says, okay, they're all in. And judgment day will come. This is amazing news for those who believe in Jesus. It's amazing news. We get the promise of eternity. We get the promise of paradise. We get the promise of the, the victory of our race. We get everything. It is horrible news for the world that rejects Jesus. Now, is God unfair? He sent his one son, and he took all the sin of the world upon him, and he says, just believe in my son. Just believe, trust that he did this for you for the forgiveness of your sins. He makes it so stinking easy. We don't have to climb to the top of a mountain. We don't have to, I don't know, conquer an army. We just have to put our trust in this one man, Jesus. And everything, every sin is taken away. Our eternity is secured. If you're God and you made it that easy and you gave your own son to die for us, how much compassion would you have on those that still rebelled against you over and over and over again? And by the way, since Jesus, has he stopped talking? Every Sunday since Jesus, right? He sends out pastors and he sends out missionaries and he sends out evangelists and he keeps, I mean, in America, there's, a, there's literally three or four churches on this street corner, right? He's just trying to share with people left and right, believe in my son. Has he been without witness in this world? Has he been without witness in Europe? It's a dwindling witness, right? A lot of those amazing churches are now bars and other kinds of things, right? But the reality is, Everywhere in our world today, there's littered churches everywhere. God has done everything, but the world continues to leave them. It's coming across some stats, and, and even in, in America right now, since 2007, there's been a huge walking away from the church. And um, it's interesting. I just I just kind of talked about the things that it has over a 10% decline since 2007. Millennials are the generation that's over 10% decline. They're leaving the church. Men and women both leaving the church. Black, white, and Hispanic doesn't seem to matter of race, leaving the church. College, no college. Education doesn't seem to matter. Northeast, South, and Midwest, only the West District didn't decline by more than 10%. Maybe it's because they didn't have that many going in the first place. I don't know, but the reality is they didn't decline by 10%. Or we're just really, really spiritual out here. I don't know. Democrats leaving the church. 17% Democrats, only 7% Republicans leaving the church. Average church attendance um, from those that profess to be Christians went from 54% to 45%. Average being they come once a month or so over the, since 2007. Um, this is what I thought was interesting too. Um, oh wait, 78% of the United States identified as Christian in 2007. So they were be part of that 2.2. 65% in 2009. And then the last, or 19, uh, then the last statistic I'll give you in 2019, 84% of the builders still, going, still profess to be Christian, 61% still going to church. With all the health issues, you have to say that's pretty good. 76% uh, of boomers profess to be Christians, 49%, one out of two going to church. Gen X, 67% profess to be a Christian, 46%, one out of two going to church. Millennials, 49%, and only one out of three are going to church. It's just a changing dynamic. But God, again, has he, has he not given us witness? 
Has he not given all these churches, at least in America, proclaiming Jesus to be the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, every Sunday, every week, probably in Bible studies, right? In small groups, it's on the airways, it's on the radios, it's, it's like everywhere you can go, plus you guys are talking about it. And yet in the midst of that gift, in the midst of that grace, in the midst of that sacrifice of his son, the world continues to walk away. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will drop all people to myself, proclaiming that when he rises again, those who believe in him will have a way. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus goes on to a, a response, and I'll get to that next week, I guess. So let me pray. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for your constant witness. We thank you for the people that go out and continue to share your message, continue to share your truth, continue to share your love. Father, we pray you help us hear it more and more and more. Help us proclaim it to those that we want to be in heaven with us. Help us be missionaries and witnesses and, Father, and be with us. Strengthen us in our weakness. Forgive us, Father, for we are so far from perfect. Help us continue to cling to you as we walk through life. Reassure us that you've got us, that you're working all things for our good. And remind us every single day that you love us. Father, that's our prayer tonight. We pray that in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Guys, go with this blessing. May our Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious always unto you. And may he look upon you now with his favor and grant you forever his peace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Please rise.